All right, so good afternoon. My name is Patrick. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a comic nerd that decided to turn my obsession into actual research and academic style writings and everything. So uh, I call myself a comic scholar. That's just a fancy word for the fact that I just buy a lot of comics and need an excuse to uh, apply it to my job. So, um, so for today, I've talked a lot about um, various topics over the years. A lot of the time I talk about like World War II. A lot of the times I talk about um, different battle systems, things like that. Um, today I decided this was going to be kind of the part two of the previous talk, lending from the origins and um, understanding of different themes from World War II as like feeding into how we present characters, how we present stories, that kind of stuff. So this is from the opposite end of the spectrum. We're coming from the manga angle instead of the uh, Western comics angle this time, or any like Bandersays or anything like that. Um, so basically, I uh, in my research, I found one battle kept coming up over and over and over again, which is Sekigahara. Sekigahara, I should say. Um, I will probably slur that a little too much because of my accent, but uh, either way, forgive me for mispronouncing any, any names or anything along the way. Um, but, uh, and by the way, if you're wondering, a uh, barrier in the field is actually what Sekigahara means. So, um, but it works for a nice little double, <laughs> double meaning there. Um, Sekigahara is probably one of the most influential events in all of Japan's history, and it has a major influence on tons and tons of different stories, even if we don't even understand that it's exerting influence over that story. So uh, a few questions to consider while I'm talking to you and giving you all this information, and there's a lot of information, and if you uh, remember it all, great. If you only remember pieces of it, fine too. Um, but a few questions to consider while I'm talking. Um, what comic themes and characters had their origins placed in this time period? What ways did it uh, shape their narrative? Um, how does this translate to native and outside audiences? Uh, how do the values change over time? And how do these threads weave through the narratives that we see even today? So just a couple of things to keep in the back of your mind while I'm talking. So why am I doing this? You know, why Sekigahara, right? Um, so a huge number of manga, huge number of series, stories, um, all use this event and the surrounding time period to basically create a core of a story and a core of influence for these certain tropes. Certain tropes that we'll talk about here in a little bit, you will see very uh, connected to uh, media and various series that you've seen even up to today. Um, if you've ever seen a Fuel Japan movie, uh, show, manga, anything like that, a lot of the themes start there. So if you've ever seen any of those, you're probably going to wind up connecting the dots to other things. Oh, and by the way, if I don't mention the series or movie or uh, that you, know, you are particularly thinking of, I apologize. This is not going to be a comprehensive list. We don't have time. We don't have nine hours for me to sit here and list off everybody. So if I miss something, We'll just, we'll just move on from that. But um, moving on, uh, even later time periods often call back to these events uh, happened during this period as it was basically a historical event that uh, changed the entire landscape of the country for the next uh, two to 300 years, this particular battle in, in actuality. Um, and then as MAGA continues to become increasingly popular in the West, uh, there's an ongoing effort to understand the cultural underpinnings in, um, in order to actually grasp the actual effects of the story and the significance of the story. I'm sure many people have uh, heard about translation issues and like information that you might not know um, off the top of your head that other audiences might. Uh, specifically, uh, the tropes, events, themes defined in this era reflect, uh, even in modern stories, you'll see the attitudes, styles, um, and even, even down to like clothing choices appear in things like science fiction and fantasy as well. Um, this period is a very popular setting, but there's a major difficulty. Um, it is mixed with all of these other time periods. It's mixed with all these other historical events, and as I'll get into, there are 
period, this period of time was a time when record keeping was not the greatest. And so people fill in the gaps, especially in fiction, with more fantastical elements. Um, and this is mostly, it's due uh, to isolationist policies. The period of time that we're talking about, about 1400 to about 1800, we're really talking about 1400 to 1600, but about 1400 to uh, 1800, we had an isolationist uh, view of the world. And uh, basically the evolution in styles for um, armor, for clothing, for weapons, things like that, um, they kind of stagnate for a bit. There are changes, but they're not nearly the same like level of changes as other places in the world. So given that, when you look at fiction, you're looking at something that mixes all of those styles from a period of about four to 500 years together. And we're, it's very difficult sometimes to parse out which time period, if we're talking about the Sengoku period, or we're talking about the Meiji period, or we're talking about the Edo period, all of those kind of mix and match together after a while. So um, it's a little difficult to fully pull out the exact ones that we're talking about for this time period. Um, and what I mean by that is here's some historical reenactors, um, actual accurate um, to the dress code of the day. So about 1600 we're talking about. Um, but if you're looking at this, and I'm betting that anyone who's ever viewed a movie or seen a uh, manga read a manga series that has this style of armor in it, probably see a lot of uh, similarities between the things that you see, even though those might take place in different time periods. So that's what I'm talking about here. And just to give an example, this is the same style helmet, but there is a 400-year difference. This is a 15, 15th century, and this is a 19th century. It's a little di and yes, of course, there are different differences in scale because you know we only have the historical uh, retrieval ones that have survived, but you can tell that there are certain aspects that just have not changed. So it gets be it gets a little difficult to parse everything out. So just so you kind of understand, and then when we get into the fiction part of, part of things, they just mix and match however they want. And oftentimes they just make things up as they go along, right? Um, so moving on into the actual you know, time period, what we're talking about today, it's kind of hard for Westerners to kind of wrap our heads around it uh, because it's on a scale that we don't associate with this time period. This, we're talking about 1600, right? Um, and this is a scale of hundreds of thousands of people involved in this one battle. It's a countrywide event, basically. Um, but it's very difficult for us to put that into perspective because we assume battles and you know, different armies of that time in the Western culture not nearly as large. We're, it's a difference of scale. Um, in reputation, it's kind of a combination of the Civil War and World War II in, in that there aren't direct similarities between them, but in the sense of scale, in the sense of cultural impact, in the sense of how we kind of consider like the Battle of Normandy, these guys, this is kind of the applicable um, battle for manga, right? Um, it's a massive civil war between dozens of factions culminating in Sekigahara. Um, and it's basically the turning point of the entire era. That era being uh, the Sengoku Jidai, right? Again, I pronounce, I pronounce things a little differently sometimes, but the Sengoku Jidai um, is basically a period of time of about 150 years or so. Um, Generally, it's considered to be uh, the start in 1467 uh, all the way till about 1615, right? Um, this is also known as the Warring States period, not to be confused with the other Warring States period from Chinese culture. A um, couple of key points uh, right at the very beginning, the uh, Onin War, uh, about a 10-year war that happened, uh, civil war that happened back then. And basically what happened is it, it's not the events and the results that are important. What, happened, what, what really is important about this is that it demonstrated 
the weakness of the centralized government at the time, and it broke apart the entire uh, country structure at the time. If anybody's seen like the history of everything or anything like that on online, you understand like when, when he says, oh, it's back together, now it broke apart, this is one of the breaking apart ones. So, um, saw a massive shattering of the entire country. Uh, and beyond that, we look at the feudal system and we saw a massive uprising of farmers, merchants, um, various other people uh, under the feudal lords uh, that wound up being a pretty massive uh, chaotic mess. So, and again, this is a period of about 150 years, just to put that into perspective. We've never had really a period of time in the US where you know, th this level of chaos was happening. So I'm gonna skip ahead about 130 years or so we're not, gonna, we're not gonna concern ourselves with the entirety of that period. We'd be here all day. Um, but a couple, of, a couple of key points that I need you to have perspective on before we get into everything. We have three, generally it's considered three different warlords, right? Uh, Odo Nobunaga, uh, Toyotomi Hideyoshi, and uh, Tokugawa Ieyasu. Um, you've probably recognized at least a couple of these names just from general consuming of media because these guys are fairly important and fairly important antagonists or um, protagonists throughout uh, various historical aspects. A uh, couple of key points, uh, 1582, the uh, Honoji incident when uh, Nobunaga was betrayed and killed. Uh, 1590, uh, the siege of Odawara um, where uh, Toyotomi solidifies his power. Um, and then, of course, uh, 1592 to 1598, there were two separate failed invasions of Korea. Uh, Hideyoshi uh, Toyotomi tried to invade Korea twice, failed both times, and uh, it inevitably pretty much led to his downfall and eventual death. Um, and keep that in mind, uh, by the way, 1598, uh, when you know he kind of failed and faded into obscurity and died because 1600 was the battle of Sekigahara but um, at this point in time Toyotomi passed away but it was between Toyotomi's forces and a different uh, force the Tokugawa uh, clan that clan wound up being uh, the basis for the Tokugawa shogunate which uh, lasted about 265 years uh, all the way up until about 1865 after this so um, and it should be said, just so we understand, um, Sekigahara, Sekigahara is not the final battle. It's not like the ultimate final battle, whatever. It's just the most important turning point of the entire war, right? Um, and this kind of solidifies one group's power enough that they can take over finally and uh, get started. Um, so I would consider it to be more of kind of a Gettysburg-style war, style battle, because it is a turning point when one, side, one side's victory winds up being kind of the entire central point for the war ending eventually. So why we should care, I know, why, why, why should I care? The context of these aspects um, gives life to the actual story, right? Um, much like American co comics tackling things like slavery, nationalism, rebellion, European comics tackling things like colonialism, market, uh, monarchism, um, knowing the history beats helps contextualize and understand the actual story that you're reading. Because I can guarantee you, because I have been there myself, reading certain, certain series, they'll make references to things that you have no idea what they mean. Oh yeah, that was a battle sometime in the past, right? Sekigahara, though, has so much surrounding it that uh, that importance kind of lends itself to the gravitas of talking about it within a story. A um, couple of main things we find in manga from this. Uh, the time of chaos, this is always kind of a centralized thing because because of the lack of narratives, the lack of record keeping beyond a certain level, right? We have all the Lord stuff and like who went here and who you know, owned this parcel of land and all this other stuff, but we don't have much on the ground level. 
because time of chaos, we had 150 years of just everybody fighting each other. Rebellions every single, every few years. Piva, whole towns would be wiped out with zero warning. Just someone comes in and decides to destroy everything. So the time of chaos kind of lends itself here. Um, this includes things like the runaway brigand um, or bandits or however you want to say it because most of these are directly referenced as runaway soldiers. Um, the demons are loose and running the world. Uh, because of all of the fantastical elements and the holes in understanding like what went down, a lot of myths and legends kind of solidify and get, they don't necessarily get started here, right? Some of them are much older than this period of time, but they solidify as, oh, this lord was actually possessed by this particular creature, this particular monster, this particular aspect. Um, mysticism and de uh, destiny always uh, leading to victory, as well as the destiny circuit of the blessed or cursed warrior. Um, I say blessed or cursed because most of them are blessed with some sort of, you know, superpowered, you know, ultimate warrior kind of thing, but uh, in exchange, they basically lose their minds. This is where, uh, this is where a lot of berserker stories show up um, from this time period. Uh, the broken warrior, the lone warrior traveling kind of aimlessly around everything. Um, this lends itself to all the runaways and all the uh, you know, soldiers who, after 150 years, they finally win, and now what do they do, right? Um, and the Lord of the world is uh, blessed by either heaven or hell. Either he is like destined to be, you know, the greatest thing ever, and you know the gods have blessed him, or all of his powers come from someplace evil, right? Uh, depending on which side you're looking at, you're also looking at um, how they interpret it. And most of the time, they're the same people, right? Nobunaga is known as a great tactician, but he's also known as the demon king. You know, Tokugawa. Sometimes the antagonist, sometimes the protagonist, depending. Um, and of course, this is a very much a time to, to mythologize everything. Um, I kind of compare it to the Old West in America. It's a good, good analogy because we create tall tales. We create monsters and myths out in the unknown spaces, right? Um, and a lot of what we consider the Old West didn't really happen, right? A lot of it did happen, sure. It's based somewhere in the vicinity of, you know, yes, this is historical fact, but then, you know, you have all those tall tales and everything else. Um, and that's because, again, Sengoku period just doesn't have as many records. It's not as ironclad as a lot of the other uh, time periods, so we can just make up things. Um, and modern day interpretations always like to, uh, mix in myths and legends and monsters and everything else. Um, I always recommend uh, this one. It just came out a few years ago. It's a, uh, uh, the Tono Monogatari. Um, it's a good point in time of kind of understanding a region's myths and legends. And most of them spring up from around this time. It's actually based on another book where they had collected all the uh, tales and everything. But this is semi-autobiographical by uh, uh, Shigeru Mizuki, who is honestly one of the most famous uh, comic artists in Japan because uh, he specialized in a series called uh, Gitaro, which specializes in understanding different monsters, different aspects, different legends throughout uh, history. This one's just one of the newer ones, just got translated into English a couple of years ago. Um, but moving on, um, some of these themes, obvious, you know, if they're, if they're, you know, the leaders are demons, literally. Um, some, some are just, you know, bandits are the runaway soldiers from the different armies. Um, some are not so obvious because uh, common occurrence mix and match history as they see fit. This is fiction after all, right? We, we're gonna take some liberties. Um, and again, often armies, people, everything, they translate or they transfer around, right? Um, and again, fiction versus reality here. Um, it isn't tracked on the ground level, but it does serve to remind ourselves that this is a historical period, right? It's 
somewhere in the mix, there's always going to be some thread of truth, hopefully. Um, but of course, it will immediately veer into fiction. Um, as well, another thing to remember, um, our heroes and villains are not always exactly how they're portrayed in real life, right? Uh, by the way, this is the same guy. This is, no, this is Nobunaga, by the way. Um, how he's portrayed in actual historical documents and how he's portrayed in uh, everything else. And just given the design, you can kind of tell the character and how they're gonna you know, push that character, right? Um, but uh, they also take on a philosophical tone, uh, determining a few styles of story. We're talking about like Heart of the Warrior versus Heart of the Army, um, Dominion, Heaven's Guided Leader, uh, the sly trickster is always a fun one, right? These are different tropes that have shown up in this various research. So um, obviously I've got to talk a little bit about some of the uh, more core stories that take, take place in this time. Um, Inuyasha is a good one, good one to start with because it's one of the few that has the setting iron at, ironed out. It is specifically during this time period, right? Um, Obviously, this is one of the most popular ones. Most people at some point have heard of this one. Um, Inuyasha sold 50 million copies in America alone, uh, sold a lot more in Japan. Um, story about a half-demon uh, fighting to get power, morphs and destroying the uh, greater evil demon. Um, time travel is included to contextualize everything, um, but it is one of the very few uh, comics actually set in the Sengoku Jidai. Um, Warring States is basically the backdrop and it interferes with the story on a regular basis. Not, uh, their, their journey is one of you know, individualism and they're moving forward with a certain quest, but um, the fact that the country is constantly at war and towns are getting wiped out at any given point and the you know, bandits from the, uh, who have like, abandoned the different armies come through and you know, attack them instead, right? Um, shows up quite a bit throughout this thing. Um, it's very focused on the mysticism and the legend side of things because almost every leader in, in this, every lord, every ruler, all of them are somehow demons, right? L little on the nose for the analogy stuff, but uh, the main antagonist is also a uh, runaway soldier um, turned bandit, uh, and the core of his character is, as we always see with you know anybody who deserts, always winds up being almost a broken coward kind of thing. In this case, literally, he was actually like almost, you know, he was burned beyond recognition kind of thing and uh, sold his soul to demons in order to uh, be able to move and rule again, right? Uh, another one from this time period, one of the few that we can actually say is specific to this time period is Dororo. Um, Dororo, uh, written by Osama Tezuka. If the, you don't know that name, he is, no, he is probably the most prolific author of all time in the industry. He wrote 167,000 pages by himself uh, by the time he died. Um, he's known as the you know, godfather of manga, the master of manga, however you want to call it. Um, this is one of the few times that he actually wrote a feudal story. Um, it's a story of you know a... Uh, Lord actually sacrifices his son in order to protect his land from the chaos around it. We've just talked about all that chaos, right, happening for 150 years. Um, so in order to protect his land, he sacrifices his son, but um, the son survives and goes on a you know, tale of vengeance kind of thing. Um, so each, re and each retrieval of a, basically every demon that uh, he was sacrificed to took a different body part. So the entire story is based around him regaining body parts. You know, he regains his sight, he regains an arm, he regains all these other things. And so each time he retrieves one, a new disaster appears for the land. So it's almost a kind of, you know, watching the land degenerate to the rest of the world from you know, a particular protected golden age at that time. Um, there are actually two versions of this thing. Um, I always recommend people start with the first one uh, by Tezuka because Tezuka is just a fabulous writer, um, but he never finished it. It was abandoned halfway through. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't very popular, so uh, he moved on. The second one is a revamping of it, uh, but for set, set for uh, modern audiences, 
you can kind of tell uh, which one is from the 60s and which one's from a couple of years ago, right? Um, but, and in particular, if we're looking at like paneling and different styles, this is the same battle. You can see if I point out, you know, the guy with the eye patch and the helmet, um, and then we move into how they, they actually depict things on the regular, ba on the uh, more current basis. This is a very, very popular se uh, series and style, and honestly, a great setting, great references. Um, here's just a quick list of a bunch of different series that, again, we'd be here all day if I went through all of them, but um, if anybody's interested, I can always provide that to you afterwards. So, now that you know the time period, about 150 you know, years or so of chaos, we're gonna actually talk about the Battle of Sekigahara. Sekigahara, um, this is one of the few instances, one of the few prints we actually have of the actual battle. Um, and for those of you who need some uh, context of what style of technology, what style of armor we're looking at, these are generally considered to be pretty good reenactors of this time period. Um, they reenact this battle on a regular basis. There's some great documentaries uh, about this. But again, I'm not gonna take you through all of the ins and outs of the battle because that'll get boring. But um, either way, this is the culmination of the entire chaotic time period, right? Um, winter starts a dynasty that lasts about 265 years. Um, again, not the end of the war. Um, but a good portion of, of both sides deserted after the battle. Everybody, this was a very scary battle for a lot of people. So we saw a huge portion, like a third of each army disappear um, afterwards. So something to consider with manga, um, most stories centering around the battle don't actually center around the battle. There are very few depictions of the actual battle itself, right? Um, they mostly focus on the survivors, they mostly focus on the lead up, they mostly focus on what happens after, right? Um, surprisingly few de depictions of the battle itself. Um, this, is, this is one of them, or a couple of them, but they're very few and far between, and this is actually because of Sekigahara was not considered important when it happened. People thought it was just another battle. And it wasn't until after the fact that people went, oh, there were a lot more people involved than we thought. Because unfortunately, we are talking about 1600, right? Communication is not instantaneous, and you know, we don't always know who's going to show up where and what, what's gonna happen. So a lot of people at the time thought it was just another battle, right? Th these things happen every other week. What, what do you mean it's supposed to be important, right? Um, it wasn't until uh, the clear winner emerged and suddenly this one side had all the power. Tokugawa, suddenly, he is you know, absolutely going to be the ruler uh, from now on. It wasn't until people realized that they, they went back, tracked it down, and said, oh wait, this is the turning point, right? So a lot of the you know, understanding of the battle came after the fact, right? So the battle I'm talking about, Sekigahara, is October 21st, 1600. Um, very brief description of the whole thing. Um, Tokugawa forces against the Toyotomi. Um, Tokugawa in the east, Toyotomi in the west. Um, it is the largest battle in feudal Japan's history, period. There's like 200, 200 to 300,000 people involved in this thing um, in 1600. Um, oddly enough, Toyotomi, as mentioned before, he actually passed away a couple of years before this battle happened. So why is it Toyotomi's side, right? Um, it's because they rallied around his son and his regent um, lord who took over um, uh, Mitsunari. Um, yeah, Mitsunari. Um, basically, he took over because his son, uh, Toyotomi's son, was only like five years old. And you can't have that as a battle leader. So um, one of his trusted advisors took over for the Western forces. Uh, but the Tokugawa forces were victorious. The Tokugawa forces actually started out with less um, soldiers than the Toyotomi side, about 75,000 to 120,000. Um, however, due to desertions and uh, a few different factions going, oh wait, this side's probably gonna win, right? Um, 
it actually wound up being 88,000 uh, on the Tokugawa side, and the Toyotomi side only had about 81,000. Now, remember, these are estimates. These are, these are the best estimates that we can kind of gather together, but there is still a little fog of war and like understanding that we don't really have everybody accounted for for this thing because some people participated and didn't say anything because they were on the losing side. And some people uh, didn't participate but managed to claim that they participated after the fact. So as close as we can tell, these are the numbers, right? Around 200,000 people officially. Uh, so Tokugawa had at least 36 uh, clans attached to his, his side uh, and about 32 clans for the other side, right? But the key difference, uh, there are about four to 10,000 people killed on the Tokugawa side, but the Toyotomi side had between eight and 32,000 people wiped out. It's pretty significant. So, um, and as well, about 25,000 of them uh, ran away after the fact because they got trounced. Um, and for those of you who need a visual aid, this is kind of how it looked. But um, Tokugawa would eventually uh, round up, execute the last of the loyalists, um, the Toyotomi loyalists, I guess I should say, uh, cementing his role in establishing the dynasty. Uh, immediately, like immediately after the, everybody realized this, they started mythologizing this battle, right? Again, it was just a regular battle until people were like, oh, wait, it gave him the everything he needed to become the dynasty, right? Um, to, so immediately it became myth, right? He was blessed by heaven. He was, you know, he had he saw a prophecy. A meteor fell out of the air and you know showed him the way to to victory. All these different things um, that he'd rule for, you know, a thousand years, kind of thing. Um, he did manage to rule for 265, 265 years, uh, not not a thousand, but either way. Um, okay, so. Moving on, where's the manga, right? Um, so, a couple of things to realize. Again, we are looking mostly at after the fact, right? We are looking mostly not at the specific battle, piece by piece, this person goes over here, this person goes over there. We're talking about you know, the characters and characters, the, the people who actually survived the battle, being mythologized, changing around. And depending on which story, you're going to see a vast difference in how they're portrayed. Uh, Sengoku is probably one of the better ones for understanding the actual battle because um, this guy, uh, uh, Hideki uh, Mayashida, um, in 2004, he had a real problem with the whole mythology thing. Everybody mythologizes this thing. Everybody uses fantastic elements to do this. Um, he decided to fix it and be as historically accurate as he possibly could. So he goes through and shows how different battles were conducted at the time in actual historical fact, not, you know, that, that like myth of, you know, the, you know, grand charge or, you know, all these like, um, you know, super powered warriors who could, you know, turn the tide of battle by themselves, that kind of stuff. He was sick of it, so he created pretty much a, what we know, how they actually fought, this is where we, uh, this is how they did it. Something to consider though, this does not just cover that period, it covers all sorts of things. He extends very far into like the Edo period, he's um, still working, uh, working on some side projects with like museums and things to kind of understand the actual way things work. So. This isn't necessarily as fictionalized as the other ones, so, but it is a great account for the pieces that show you, that show up. Now on the opposite end of this is uh, Sengoku Basara. Um, I'm sure someone in here has probably heard of this because it's a very famous video game franchise as well um, and anime franchise. Uh, it is done by various artists, so um, there's three or four of them attached to the actual manga itself, but something to consider. This is a very sanitized version of a retelling of the entire time period, right? Uh, this is, th think of it as, as like Hollywood getting a hold of World War II, right? We're gonna ignore all the like nasty parts generally. We're gonna kind of shuffle that to the side and we're going to focus on, you know, the noble people and, you know, the epic battles and everything else with it while ignoring all of the stuff, the, all the gritty stuff. 
Um, they focus specifically on making more of a fun and engaging uh, style story. So all of the characters, no, if you're talking about like you know uh, Tokugawa or any Mitsunuri, like all have superpowers. They fly through the air, and they're all uh, basically just like it's it's very close to like what Marvel is presented by, kind of anymore. Um, so they also focused on making it a much more simplistic story. We're not going to talk about all the little moving parts and everything else. You have instead of you know, 36 different clans and everything else. Yeah, no, there's really only two sides, right? So we're just going to ignore all the little intricate details and all the little factions in a much more good versus evil style, uh, style presentation. Um, I recommend, moreover, uh, looking a little past those two, though, because honestly, the more common thread through these is a slightly mythologized uh, either action or introspective style story. We're looking at uh, Samurai Deeper Kyo's, one of those that very popular, very shonen-esque, so it was clearly aimed at like teenagers. Uh, so it does ignore some of the grittiest parts of things, and we're not gonna go into like the pol political things, um, but it is a little bit more of a mature story, so just keep that in mind. Um, but it focuses on the mythology part of things, on the, on you know the superpowered warrior that managed to turn the tide of battle and then disappeared forever afterwards, right? Um, it's actually very close to like a Hulk story, where like Banner shows up, you know, takes care of the problem and then leaves again, right? Um, and he actually he actually has some same similarities, like a Jekyll and Hyde, a Banner Hulk kind of thing, um, where he shows up, he's the berserker warrior, kills everything in his path, and then leaves, right? Um, it's very focused on like the demonic side of things because the Battle of Sekigahara is understood to be like, it, it's referenced several times as like hell on earth because of how many people were involved, how many people got destroyed at that point in time. So it's very focused on the almost demonic uh, aspect. And then, of course, the antagonist winds up being you know, one of the blessed from heaven that really is not. But uh, we won't go too far into that. But either way, it, it very much uh, specializes in the, a, you know, a meteor comes through and blesses this warrior, but also curses this warrior. Uh, and it also ties into this uh, runaway warrior trope because the actual person involved uh, runs away and is like technically like an entirely different person after he leaves the battle. Um, and actually, this is one of those uh, few instances where I can directly link it to like the runaway warriors, the runaway, um, you know, the runaway people who turn into bandits, who turn into you know, thievery and robbing after the war. Um, and it also connects uh, specifically to one of the earliest instances, I would say, of documented PTSD. Um, we didn't call it that, and you know, obviously we didn't know about PTSD until you know fairly recently. But, um, but given how the documentations happen, um, it's very it's very similar descriptions on how these warriors change personalities, hid themselves. Um, and you know would go from a berserker rage to a quiet person you know in in the background it's very similar to how we see some of the descriptions now that we know what it's actually called um, but moving forward uh, we've got drifters drifters is a fun one but not very based in reality this is this is very much uh, one of the few uh, if anybody knows uh, the genre isekai um, this is one of those uh, but it pulls historical figures from all over the place and this is, uh, transports them into a fantasy world. Uh, the reason why this is relevant is because of our main character who is actually a part of the losing side of the Battle of the Sekigahara. Uh, his legend actually revolves around the last thing that he does is he hunts a guy down for like nine or ten miles after being um, mortally wounded and hunts down his killer um, now, that is not necessarily a 
uh, fact fact, but it is a legend. There are very there are a couple of different endings this guy had, but uh, it, more likely what happened is that he was killed on the battlefield and they never found his body. Um, but his legend is that he, you know, managed to track down his killer over a huge distance while being mortally wounded. So his last act was this revenge against this person. Um, so he becomes the basis um, of what we know as, as, you know, the unstoppable warrior trope. Everybody's heard that. Everybody's seen that in manga. There's always some protagonist that just, why are you still up and running? Like, you know, stay down, and they keep getting back up. That's the standard trope of manga, right? Um, he t this, uh, this author, uh, Kota Hirano, um, actually ties it back into that, and he becomes kind of the unstoppable warrior trope. Um, you're talking uh, about other historical figures as well. Uh, remember I talked about uh, Nobunaga before? Uh, Nobunaga is in here, and he plays the role of the trickster. Um, he plays the, he's known as a trickster person. He's known as the Demon King, that kind of thing. Um, gun obsessed in history uh, before he died, but he winds up being kind of the uh, sniper, the planner, the, trick, the tricky person that we have to, you know, find, figures out how to like sneak into bases and things like that. Um, uh, so Shimazi is the actual um, character we're talking about here. He was known as a tenacious, unstoppable person uh, in real life. Um, they basically tie him directly into the, yeah, he's never going to stop. He's going to uh, hunt him down forever. Um, and in that period, period of, and that particular trope style. Um, the other one I really want to talk about is Vagabond, because Vagabond's awesome uh, in particular. Uh, and for those of you even not interested in uh, this particular topic, I would highly recommend this series just because of things like the artwork and the storytelling is a masterclass in how to actually tell a story. Um, so Takahiko Inoue, um, in 1998, um, started this series. It's technically still going. He went on hiatus like 10 or 15 years ago and just has never come back. But he's always said he may come back to it later, right? So we may get an ending to this. We may not. Uh, but it is still technically going. Um, and the reason why this is relevant is, of course, one, he has one of the very few depictions of the actual battle in manga, right? Um, all of the opening stories focus on the people who have survived. Focus on, you know, we're talking about people who have run away from the battlefield. We're talking about, about people who, you know, managed to survive and now they're, you know, in a better state of being, right? Um, but the main point of this story is focused around the lone warrior trope. Understanding, and it's honestly, it's a very introspective series, but it's very much focused on um, the actual like understanding of what it means to be a warrior, what it means to be a swordsman, that kind of thing. Um, it does it does concern Miyamoto Musashi, um, whoever's probably encountered that name before. Uh, considered to be one of, if not the greatest swordsman of all time uh, from Japan. Uh, but it is a semi-autobiographical. I say that semi because it's not just his particular writings that this guy based it off. It's also based off a novel uh, that was a, a historical fiction novel where the guy you know, based it around the you know, supernatural warrior known as the greatest warrior Japan has ever had kind of thing, and then filled in the gaps sometimes. It's all technically based in historical fact, but not always. So it is uh, semi-autobiographical. I wouldn't necessarily say every event in this series actually happened, but either way. Um, I did want to focus specifically on how this guy actually communicates uh, different aspects of <laughs> the actual world itself. You can get um, different feelings from different panels of this thing. So I, this is a personal recommendation. I would highly recommend uh, reading Vagabond if you're interested in this at all. Um, but this, it, it does have a focus on what happens now, right? 
we start out with a lot of stories based on the survivors of Sekigahara. We know that everything's changing, but Tokugawa has not solidified everything yet. Again, he doesn't solidify everything until about 1615, right? When the shogunate officially starts. So at this point in time, directly after that battle, we're seeing a time of upheaval, right? People, things are starting to solidify, but it's not there yet. We're still in the time of chaos. Um, so the upheaval, the understanding of different uh, people and the change of you know, lifestyles is really central to this story. Um, the main character is very focused on the idea of what it means to be a perfect swordsman. You know, there's, a, there's that mountain metaphor a lot where he climbs the mountain and he's the top of the mountain and then he looks in the distance and there's another mountain that's much taller, right? Um, I would say um, that it, you know, specifically focuses on the more esoteric, the more uh, philosophical bent um, for a lot of this and the sense of finding out whatever you actually are. Um, so, I know I've kept you, I've kept you a while here, but um, what has changed? Um, honestly, not much. A lot of these tropes that I just went through, you probably just connected to a lot of modern series as well. Um, a lot of these central ideas, this idea of the you know, myth, myth of the warrior who's cursed or warrior who's blessed, the myth of the heaven's blessing for this you know, dynasty that is going to last for a very long time, for hundreds of years, the aspect of culture not really shifting. All of these are based in history first. And yes, like we have previous manga series out there that tie in based on the myths that they grew up with. So what we have is the historical narrative, then I grow up and I make my own manga series, and then someone else gets famous and goes back and uses those same tropes to tie back into the Sekigahara narrative. But they all wind up being almost based from this time period, if that makes sense. Uh, it's a lot of loops, it's a lot of um, feeding on each other, but these central core, these core tenets, these tropes that you know, may show up in manga all the time different, in different ways, all seem to stem from this particular time period. Um, it's difficult to see, from, see exactly where some of these start because the lack of accounts from people who were, you know, not at the high level where, you know, they could afford dictation and to, you know, actually write things down and everything else without it being absolutely, like, burned uh, or destroyed or anything like that. There are some, but it becomes muddled uh, between fact and fiction a lot because, again, a lot of people would literally write down that a lord or a ruler or someone like that was an actual demon. You know, they, not just that they were a horrible ruler and, you know, they took all the food and, you know, wouldn't let them eat or, you know, would abuse their subjects or anything. That would turn into just a one-to-one, -one, no, they're an actual demon. They're possessed by something, right? Um, that happens quite a bit. Uh, but the, so the lack of you know, actual factual accounts winds up muddling with the actual fictional, fictional accounts. And some of these are obvious, right? If I read that someone was a literal demon, I'm not taking that as them being a literal you know, monster or something like that. But it's hard to determine exactly where these narratives uh, stop being fiction and actually start being fact. Because certain things that they claim, you know, sure, they took all your food and that's why the rebellion happened, but they probably weren't, you know, eating people. You know, they weren't man-eating demons or whatever. So, um, but either way, it's difficult to determine fact and fiction with this. Uh, in manga, we're fantastical, when we're fantastic reign supreme, uh, creators leaned a little too hard into it and fiction usually winds up being a little more prevalent in there. And so it even winds up being more difficult to parse it out. Um, the values of the, these stories imprinted on the general narrative structure of manga as a whole. Um, it doesn't matter what genre you're talking about. It doesn't matter what series you're talking about. Everything I have said in here probably ties into a trope that you have seen in your reading or in your watching in anime if they've 
adapted a story or something like that. Um, these have imprinted on the actual core of how we tell stories. Um, moreover, the values uh, sprung up from legends and history of these events uh, basically becomes a blueprint of the actual uh, central cores of these stories. And honestly, since very few stories, we didn't talk a whole lot about this, but very few stories in manga take place before this time period, right? Most of them take place after this time period. When, even when they go back to fantasy and you, you go back to early, early fantasy mangas in Japan will pretty much wind up being in the Sengoku Jidai uh, in the Warring States period. They won't go past that most of the time. Every once in a while you'll find one that does, but most of the time they don't. Um, this is, so this is kind of the starting point for a lot of these series. Something to keep in mind. Um, so, few tropes that we've kind of gone over today. Uh, superior warrior, the blessing curse, nature to become a berserker destroying everyone in his path. Uh, legendary battle that cements the world into a stable period of time, right? Uh, no matter how many years pass, it's still the same thing with very few changes. Uh, losing side is won by large defections of the enemy to the other side. Everybody's seen that even in the small scale, right? The, the enemy that becomes the friend and betrays the other enemy, the larger enemy, right? That's just Dragon Ball Z right there, just the entire series. Um, the, and of course, the ruler of the land is a demon, the lone warrior will defeat him, which I don't know if you know, any of those kind of came to mind there, but you know, if we're talking about, say, the lone warrior will defeat the demon lord. That is pretty much the entire um, aspect of any Dragon Quest manga, any Final Fantasy manga, any final, any, any like standard fantasy trope uh, series. You've probably encountered that, right? You talk about berserkers, who's high. Uh, you know, you're talking about a warrior who's hiding a berserker inside, who's been blessed or cursed. That say, it seems a little familiar, right? Um, we're looking at tropes that even if they are earlier than the ones I've talked about, all of these core issues from the Sengoku Jidai, Jidai the uh, Battle of Sekigahara, all of those tropes that it kind of established themselves in the historical narrative and the historical mythos winds up being the core for a lot of series out there. So uh, that being said, research is still ongoing. Um, this is not a complete picture. I know I missed a lot of series. I know I've, um, ha I had to leave out a lot of different references. Um, plenty of research. I'm still going, uh, going with this thing um, as the effects of this particular battle has far-reaching effects through how manga creators tell stories. Um, you'll find these th things in uh, Gundam, Banner of the Stars, One Piece, tons of others, right? Uh, tropes, I, uh, tropes I talked about today have deep roots, deep, deep roots in the actual mythology of how people grow up and understand and how they should tell stories, especially in the manga industry. Thank you for listening, and I will see you probably next semester.